Welcome everyone to the Australian Bitcoin podcast. You're listening to myself, Justin, as well as Jeremy from Hardlock. Today we'll be discussing recent global and local Bitcoin news, as well as the Australian Bitcoin bush bash. How's it going, Jeremy? Yeah, pretty good, Justin, after a long drive. I know, it's uh, it's a bit like that. It feels very frantic as well. I think everyone's probably come back from the bush bash feeling very energized, probably a bit tired, um, but plenty of little projects and, and things to go on with, which is really exciting. Yeah, I definitely have a ton of ideas and, uh, you know, software recommendations I've written down, but each one of those you've got to download it, figure out how to use. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot to that's come out of that that is really valuable. Exactly. Look, this is a, a slight tangent. Um, I heard on the radio, the only mainstream uh, news that I get is sometimes listening to Fresh FM, which is an Adelaide community-based radio station. Yep. And they had this, uh, like, headline that said that, just recently, they found that there was a, a Chinese man that lived in the airport, the Chinese airport for 14 years because he was trying to avoid going home to his family. And so he's been sort of discovered now. And this is a new story that's come out. And I thought that's like, obviously, he's probably got some reasons that he doesn't want to go home to his family. And it's probably not a laughing matter. However, I do find that kind of hilarious. And I wonder if based on all the kind of bonding that happened at the bush bash, whether there's still some Bitcoiners that are still in Beechworth, not wanting to go home to their families <laughs> yeah. that don't yeah. understand Bitcoin as well as yeah. everyone else that was there. Um, I just wanted to throw that in as a like kind of a hilarious bit of headline, non-Bitcoin news. But uh, yeah, maybe if we go back to Beechworth, we find a few people stowaways in that, uh, that community town hall. <laughs> yeah, it was certainly an enjoyable weekend. What were your highlights? My highlights, uh, look, I Catan's presentations, both the uh, initial one about being more privacy security conscious, um, where he introduced a few different tools around like VPNs, password managers, private email, as well as his second, which was more about setting up your own uh, your own secure fortress, your own self-hosted fortress. Um, both of those left me with various projects to go away with. But also, most of his first presentation are things that I'm already doing, which is great. But I'm really happy to see that other people are getting involved in that as well. Now, anyone who's read our newsletter so far will have seen things about things like um, password managers and private emails. Yep. And we will have some coming up soon. Um, about even VPNs or what kind of browsers to use that are a bit more secure, even what kind of search engines to use. So it was really cool to see him cover that, other people interested in that sort of stuff. And one thing that he didn't cover, which he wasn't meant to cover, of course, is more about like on-chain privacy, which is a pretty complicated topic. Um, however, Katana and I had a chat before the Bush Bash and we recorded that and that's coming out next Monday, which is all about best practice tools and uh, processes for Bitcoin on-chain privacy. So yeah, cool to see that being taken more seriously and um, nice to know that there's more content coming out if uh, anyone's keen to hear more. Yeah, I mean, if you didn't make it, his, his two presentations were highlights for me. I took a lot of notes. Um, there's a lot of things that I um, selected to work on, like little things like contacts. I've never thought about my phone contacts or in Google. Um, you know, so there's, there's a lot in there. And um, I, for those who missed out on being there, the episode you recorded with him will, will probably cover some of that sort of stuff. True. Um, for me, as well as those two, just there was a bit of a section on kind of philosophy. And I think it is actually quite important as we transition from, uh, you know, currency to hard money. It changes a lot uh, mm. about the potential to save and therefore options you have in life. And um, yeah, I think having time to just do some reflection in that sort of philosophy, I think was really fantastic. And I think the engagement in that section was, was really amazing. Definitely. There was a... Uh... Yeah, there was a few kind of back to back, which talked yeah, a lot about, you know, if you are considering making Bitcoin a big part of your life, you know, what what's your long term plan? You know, if you're looking at having a citadel, how would you set that up? Well, what, what's the nuance to that? Um, as well as, yeah, you know, knowing yourself, knowing your values, your direction in life and very profound, very emotional 
Um, I, I thought I was just going to uh, hear a bunch of just, you know, different technical details and economic history and monetary history. And it was nice to have some, uh, you know, kind of hard hitting emotional stuff in there as well. It just yep. make, makes you sort of rethink, well, not rethink maybe, but just, uh, you know, set your compass for life, basically. Yeah. Um, I also really enjoyed just the socializing aspect because the people who have kind of um, made the, the long journey to get there, they a lot of them have very similar, I guess, hobbies, I guess, in terms of reading a lot and, and understanding history and so on. And so there's some really good conversations you could have with people who had uh, obviously both into Bitcoin, but had similar crossovers in other areas, sort of unrelated to Bitcoin, but, you know, had um, done the research and so on. Definitely. it's it, There's a level of assumed knowledge there where you get to show up and just talk about the deep and meaningful stuff that you want to talk to everyone else in your life about with Bitcoin. But most other people are kind of not tuned into that yet. Yep. But so having everyone on the same frequency, it just made for really fruitful conversations, really useful conversations to take things away from. Yeah, definitely. And we did get a few questions about how we can make our um, transactions so cheap, our Bitcoin withdrawals. And, you know, like, it's, it, I guess it could be on the outside, if you haven't researched it, it might seem like we're doing it in a way that's not sustainable, but it is actually sustainable. Um, but it's just so much cheaper than the, you know, the big crypto exchanges because we want people to be self-sovereign and they don't in, in many cases. But we thought we might do another episode where we go into the details because there is actually some Bitcoin, like when I did the research for that, I did a lot of research into how Bitcoin transactions work. And, um, you know, we could go through that in another episode. Definitely. Look for any advanced users. that will probably make sense to them immediately. We are just using batched spends based on mempool space, um, medium fee which essentially means, actually, I'm not sure if it's even based on the medium fee. It's so actually, it'll be the low fee. The yeah. low fee, there yeah. you go. So yeah, batch spend would make sense to anyone who's used that before, yeah. but we'll talk a little bit more about, you know, the trade-offs, the things that we've considered and, and how it's been implemented. Yeah, and how we see that going in the future. That's it. Look, I just want to, I want to be respectful of people's privacy. So I'm not going to mention people by name where I don't think that they would like it. Um, however, I did just want to shout out Brisket, which is, you know, BTC Brisket on Twitter, because uh, he gave one of the uh, the great presentations I was referring to just before, particularly about setting up a Bitcoin Citadel. So it's just good to give him a bit of credit for that. Another privacy or security focused presentation that I really appreciated, or perhaps even two, was one talking about Calyx operating system yeah. for uh, mobile phones. And I, I won't mention who did that. Um, however, it's good to see that more people are taking that seriously. I feel like I might be doxing myself a little bit um, or, or kind of eroding my anonymity here, but I do use Calyx. I think it's great for a daily driver type phone. I took a few tips from Catan as well. And I, last night, I actually have set up my Calyx phone much better than what I had previously. I had it almost set up way too secure, which made it very inconvenient to use, whereas now I've got a great level of security still, but more convenience. So look, if anyone is keen to know about Calyx OS, hit me up. I've learned a little bit from uh, the Bush Bash and I've uh, done a bit of self-exploration with that too. And I can always um, you know, help out if you're, you're keen to upgrade your phone privacy. Yeah, <clears throat> there definitely is a bit of thinking required to get that balance between security and convenience. Because <clears throat> one of the things I took away from that was that the a lot of the camera functionality is in the software. Yeah, and the Google software is much better than any other software. So th there is a balance of you know containing the, the Google bits in certain sections of the phone and then That's having right. other sections really secure. And then that phone has such great ability to sandbox or to lock down certain yep. apps. So you could still use, say, a Google-based um, keyboard or a Google-based camera knowing that that is trying to scrape your data and send it away to a server. But with Calyx, you can do something like set up a firewall rule very easily um, that says, don't let my keyboard connect to the internet. Don't let my camera or my gallery connect to the internet. And therefore, you can still use the best software in terms of the features and usability and the quality, but also keep it privacy and security conscious. It was really cool to hear more talk about passphrases as well. 
um, anyone who's heard the podcast with Daniel and I from uh, probably about three or four weeks ago now around hardware wallets, it kind of became a tangential podcast about passphrases as well. And um, there was a lot of talk about passphrases at the Bush Bash. And so it's great to see people considering adding that as a part of their arsenal to uh, to lock down their Bitcoin better. Yeah, I mean, I, that, that discussion just kind of helps you really think about how do passwords work? And then it's, that helps you in general security. That's right. Passphrases, because that's where people get mixed up passwords and passphrases. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, so I've added some extra confusion there. But it does kind of make you think about, oh, this is what makes password security in any setting. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Another notable mention for me was uh, Nick. So coin joiner Nick, he created, um, well, we, 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 we witnessed because it's it's Nick working with uh, Lloyd and uh, I, I believe sort of building on, of course, the, the work of many that have come before. Um, but we witnessed the first Frost, which is a protocol, uh, Taproot multi-sig transaction, which is very cool to be a part of that history um, and amazing to see something demonstrated live when the code was only finished the night before. And that would have been really stressful for, for Nick. <laughs> yep. um, but at the same time, really rewarding to see that go off without a hitch, really, and for people to be able to see the kind of things that Taproot can do. Um, and especially the fact that that's going to reduce the, the data that's used on chain. So it's going to make things uh, cheaper and less congested. Yep. And it's going to make multi-sig more accessible to people. Um, and it's also going to help with privacy because it aggregates a lot of data rather than making it quite specific what's happening in that transaction. Because the more specific we are with transactions, usually the more unique or identifying it is. And that creates a really, it's like a clear footprint of what's going on on chain. So Taproot helps to, uh, to kind of remove a lot of that given it's aggregated together. Probably too much detail um, to go into in this session, but I think um, check out Nick's work. It's, uh, it's well worth your, your time. Definitely. Any other comments about the Bush Bash? Uh, no, no, we just have to catch up on work because we've, we've been away. <laughs> exactly. Look, I, I want to give one more shout out, which is uh, to Ethan from Bitteroo. He had a presentation that was uh, really about the Bitcoin Moon Fund, as well as the Australian Bitcoin industry body uh, and his work to do with those two organizations in particular. And uh, his presentation was hilarious. So it was really nice to have a bit of comedic relief in yes, there, yeah. uh, while at the same, same time being uh, incredibly informative. So much appreciated, Ethan. Um, and I think it was well placed as well between some very technical stuff and some yeah. very emotional stuff and yeah nice to have um, some light-hearted humor in there as well as some really great information about what's happening in the bitcoin space to help you know further it definitely all right so we might as well jump into the news so there's a lot of bitcoin privacy news that's been going on recently because there is so much and i have been posting a bit about it on both my personal as well as the hard block twitter i think if you want more detail about any of these things of course check the show notes but also look back at some of the things that we've posted however i'll rattle off a few things that i think are pretty cool so one is a project called i don't know if project's the right word but something called robosats so this is now available on mainnet and what it is it's a decentralized and private Lightning Network peer-to-peer -peer Bitcoin fiat exchange. They use Lightning hold invoices to mitigate counterparty risk, uh, which you could probably see as loosely being like an escrow kind of setup. And so the whole benefit or the, the purpose of RoboSats is to allow people to exchange fiat out of band, which means like outside of the, uh, the blockchain and outside of the Lightning Network. So say for example, a bank transfer or a money order, um, or even cash changing hands while you're still, say, getting lightning for the cash that you've exchanged um, or, or vice versa. You might be selling some of your lightning for cash or fiat. So it's pretty cool to see more decentralized exchanges popping up, um, especially on the lightning network. This is probably one of the ones that first ones, at least that I've heard of um, on the lightning network. So pretty cool, worthwhile checking out. Yeah. 
Another is the coin swap protocol that's also now on the mainnet. And this is to help with private transactions that have no on-chain footprint like coin joins do. Because usually when you coin join, it becomes kind of obvious that you might be either coin joining with yourself and, and making it look like you're coin joining with someone else, or it might make it obvious that you are coin joining with someone else. And that's not too bad because you get privacy from that, but it is clear to an outside observer that a coin join is happening. However, being able to have private transactions without the footprint, which makes it look like a private transaction, is even more private. That's something called steganography. And again, too much detail for the podcast, but I wanna give an example. So it might look like on chain that someone is sending from person A to person B, or, or maybe said more technically correct, receiving address A, sending to receiving address B. That's what it looks like. However, what's actually happening is it's going from receiving address A to receiving address Z, totally different. And while at the same time, someone else is sending from what looks like receiving address Y to receiving address Z, they're actually sending from receiving address Y to receiving address B. So look, if that's confusing, listen back to that because I've been very careful about choosing those, uh, those letters to denominate the receiving addresses. Basically, to sum it, people are using multi-sig transactions to send to someone else's wallet while also receiving something to a wallet that they control. But on chain, it doesn't look like that's happening whatsoever. So very, very cool protocol. And it's already live, not something that we need to look forward to. Uh, you can use it now if you're keen to test it out. Another great thing, I think this might be maybe the biggest news. So BIP47 PayNIMS are becoming more of a standard. So Katana and I talk about this in the upcoming podcast. So if you want more detail about PayNIMS and how they work, I reckon check out that podcast. But the thing to note with the news that we're talking about now is that, and, and I guess just to clarify, PayNIMS are available only on Samurai and Sparrow at the moment. But Blue Wallet is trying to integrate PayNIMS with a, uh, a bounty that they have out to say to someone, if you can integrate PayNIMS for us in our wallet, uh, we'll pay you, you know, Bitcoin essentially. And that's pretty cool. However, the Bitcoin development kit has been updated or will be updated very soon um, to add BIP47. So what the Bitcoin development kit is, is it's a lot of, um, look, I'm not a coder, so I'm probably not going to use the right words here, but it's different repositories and libraries you know, pieces of code that makes someone who's developing a wallet makes their job a bit easier. So they can take those pieces of code that have been pre-prepared in a, a more standardized fashion so they can integrate very common tools in their Bitcoin wallet that are available in many other Bitcoin wallets to help wallets become more interoperable. So this Bitcoin development kit, often called the BDK, is going to add BIP47 support, which is very, very cool. In sum, BIP47 essentially means that you can have a static receiving address that does not change, but it allows you to receive Bitcoin and send Bitcoin in a private fashion that is very difficult for someone external to link back to that static receiving reusable address that you use. And so this is great for things like collecting donations or being paid for services, but without having to run something like a BTC pay server or um, sat sale, or even just running your own node, you can actually do it uh, inside of a wallet. It's always best to run your own node with a wallet, of course, but the point being, it kind of removes a lot of the barriers to being able to receive Bitcoin for donations or payments. So this would be very useful in today's day and age, I think. Related news, I, I did just mention that Sparrow Wallet already has BIP47. Um, however, that's something that's very recent. So I think it's good to just give them a bit of credit um, that they have now integrated essentially all 
BIP47 Paynim support. They were doing that kind of very piecemeal, which makes sense. It's hard to develop and integrate those things. However, now they have full Paynim support. Something that's related to this is uh, Whisper addresses. So a NIM called Super Testnet, which is obviously not his real name, um, has developed and released Whisper addresses. And these are available now. So it's not something that's coming out soon. It's something that is already accessible. So Whisper addresses, <clears throat> I'm just getting my head around this now a bit, but it's essentially like Paynims or BIP47. However, it uses a website. So what Whisper addresses allows is for you to have a website that lets you generate receiving addresses that are shared with a donator that no one else knows about. But it's done in a way that's a little bit more sophisticated than traditional paynims, whereby if someone goes to the website, um, they just get a receiving address. But every time they go back to the website, they get a new receiving address. Um, so if someone was trying to go to the website to find out what receiving addresses you're using, um, they would never really get much information because every time they go back, they get a new receiving address. This is also very useful for donating, of course, because then you don't re uh, reuse any receiving addresses. It uses JavaScript. So it's kind of like an app level development. It's not something that's integrated uh, on chain um, or in Bitcoin Core or something like that. It's actually done separate, like another layer. So very, very cool, worthwhile checking out. Yeah, a lot of this development, it's, it's very cool stuff. It's a bit, I think it's, it's very early days. Definitely. And um, I think what we're probably seeing is developer kind of people doing this innovation. And then what we'll see later on is product manager, people like myself who are thinking more about user interface and maybe ex-Windows users like myself who mm. are used to clicking just the one button. We'll take this technology and simplify it and put it into applications. Because yeah, maybe it goes, it's good for donations, but it sounds like it could work on e-commerce. Yeah, like I, I think the, the Lightning stuff is quite interesting because that's so new relative to Bitcoin that we're going to see, you know, some of these applications come into um, products that maybe will work better for the mainstream. Agreed. and. It seems to be really picking up steam, some of these things. You know, privacy has always been a concept with Bitcoin, obviously, and we've always had things like CoinJoin. Bit47 has always been around, but to see them being adopted more and then not just adopted, but expanded out into protocols or um, uh, solutions that leverage off of the privacy you can gain from them is really cool. But you are right, it's, it's pretty complicated stuff. And you know, even reading over some of the documentation, it's hard for me to get my head around it the first time. <laughs> yeah. um, and then of course, to describe it you know, live um, or record it the first time is also difficult. So you're right, we're gonna need more non-technical people that have the technical understanding to some degree to be able to like, okay, disseminate that in a nice way that's understandable, but also integrate it in usable tools. Yes. Um, Look, there is a bit of news around Wasabi Wallet. I feel like this has been covered quite a bit now, so I'm just gonna really gloss over it. Um, Wasabi Wallet is a privacy-focused wallet. However, they are- Would you say was or? Uh, yeah, I'll, <laughs> I would say was is probably the, the best way. At least they purported themselves to be a privacy wallet. There was always a bit of drama between them and uh, Samurai Wallet, uh, criticizing each other's implementations. I personally believe, and I feel like I know enough about this uh, space, like on-chain privacy, to say that with confidence that Samurai Wallet has always had the better implementation with their mixing protocols and just the way that their wallet works from a privacy-preserving standpoint. However, some of the recent news about Wasabi is that they are going to start doing chain analysis on users that try to use their mixing or coin join service, and they'll also begin blacklisting certain UTXOs. It's not clear what UTXOs they'll blacklist, I guess the point is that this is often a slippery slope and something that's useful to keep in mind, going back to the, you know, the Asafa Punk's manifesto, um, the ethos of, you know, building tools for privacy. The idea is that you build tools for privacy and you make them available and you don't make judgments on what's right and wrong. And that's what's kind of happening with Wasabi. They're making judgments on what's right and wrong. They're saying we're going to blacklist certain perhaps 
criminal UTXOs or sanctioned UTXOs. And that becomes a slippery slope because what's not a crime today could become a crime in future. And yeah. if we're producing tools that are meant to be helping people with privacy and security and self-sovereignty, that's all that should be happening. There shouldn't be any kind of moral judgment there about how those tools should be used. And if, if people want to make that kind of moral judgment, I would say they can't really call themselves in line with a cyberpunk's manifesto because that's not what the ethos is at all. So worthwhile to keep that in mind. Like there's a bit of other news there. There was some kind of internal drama in their team. A couple of the developers left citing ethical and technical concerns. And I think that's all useful stuff to keep in mind when looking at which projects you want to support. But I think there's enough stuff on Twitter. Go embroil yourself in the drama if you feel like it. Otherwise, I think that's just good to know that that's going on in the background. Yeah, I mean, I was very disappointed here. Like, I used Wasabi. I did use Wasabi as a test wallet. I'm mm -hmm. going to get rid of it. Uh, it's because it was, it was quite convenient to use for our testing. But it just shows you that um, often you can't judge people on what they say. It's what they do. In, in this case, what they've done is seems pretty similar to me to what MetaMask did to when they blocked Iranian IP addresses uh, recently and they all lost their assets. Um, you definitely don't expect that in the Bitcoin space and you definitely don't expect in the Bitcoin privacy space exactly. to be basically making comparison between, say, Wasabi and MetaMask. Very true. It's um, kind of incongruous in some ways. It's just I, I don't really understand why they've done this because um, their brand has just been destroyed. Um, yeah, why, why have a privacy brand and then destroy it? If, if anyone's been using Wasabi and they're not sure where to go next, um, I'll just generally say Samurai Wallet and Sparrow Wallet. However, please listen to the podcast coming out with Catan in about a week from now. Um, that will have all the best practice privacy tools that you need, as well as explanations of why they work and how to use them. And it just shows you can't trust anyone. And if you want a bit more detail about this and you don't want to trawl through Twitter for drama, uh, Stefan Levera had a really good recent explanation in one of his podcasts with, um, well, I can't remember her Twitter handle. It's Lily, uh, Markets by Lily. She's worked at Compass before. She does some um, contribution to, I believe, both Ronan Dojo and Samurai Wallet. Um, but I will link to that in the show notes if you want to hear a, you know, a verbal recollection of, of what's been going on there as well. All right, I think we can move on from privacy news, but I'm glad that we've spent almost like 15 minutes talking about privacy news because that, to me, is, I'm very bullish on that. That's great. I yeah. love it. Yeah, definitely. So uh, in related to privacy, unfortunately, um, you may have heard that HubSpot, which is a, a CRM in the cloud, uh, they had a, a data leak for about 30 customers. Mm. Uh, in there was um, Swan, Unchained Capital, BlockFi. So it's obviously very disappointing for those companies. But a pretty big warning for uh, for everyone, really, to just kind of think about your system architecture. Fortunately, our data is not in the cloud and the CRM. But, you know, it did make us think about, you know, we've designed our site to be easy to use. Uh, and maybe we will still keep that uh, simplicity, but maybe we're going to start um, over the next, maybe, you know, the course of this year, um, implementing ways in which users who are really conscious of privacy can interact with us um, using encryption and so on. Um, because... You know, we've seen Ledger have this problem now quite a few. I mean, you know, that's pretty disappointing for Unchained Capital, I would have thought. Like, mm. it's um, that, that data is pretty critical. We've kind of taken this on board as a, as a really major warning and to, to try and think about that a bit more. Absolutely. Look, I'm confident in what we do here. I've got a, a good mind, I believe, for privacy and security, and, and I am confident with what Hardblock is doing. However, it's always good to try to learn and try to improve that further and know that there's going to be some users that want that, that additional level of well, privacy or security, but that comes with that um, trade-off with convenience. And so we want to make sure that there's options available for people. Yeah, definitely. And some of the tools are free and, and pretty easy to use. It might involve downloading one thing. So, you know, it's and it helps them to understand as well how to, how to best interact with the internet. And it's also good just to reiterate that Hardblock is not susceptible to this vulnerability. Uh, we don't use a CRM or a customer relationship management software. Yep. And um, look, I guess just to, um, what's the word here? 
to give the benefit of the doubt and to reflect what I've seen, um, the, the type of platforms that were affected by this, like Unchained Capital, Swan, they seem to be taking it very seriously. Yes. They've announced it very quickly. And my understanding is that they're now taking a lot of these services in-house, which is yes. going to be far more expensive and uh, difficult. But yep. at the same time, they, they're they taking it seriously. They want to protect their users. So that's really good to see in the Bitcoin space that people are, yeah, are pushing that personal level of responsibility rather than outsourcing everything. In a way, if you weren't impacted by the breach, it's a kind of good to review the actions of these companies that were affected. And tells you a lot, you know, ProtonMail uh, with the Russo situation, um, they've not sanctioned anyone. Um, but you look at Wasabi, they had some, I guess, bad PR and a lot of staff left. Exactly <laughs> so, you know, right. those sort of, uh, they give, that tells you a lot about which are the best companies to work with. True. And look, working in this space, doing anything online, whether you're working in this space or just, you know, online as a, a general user, there will be data breaches and leaks. You will leak some of your personal data, whether you whether you like it or not, whether you are you know trying to have perfect privacy or not, it's just bound to happen. So it's good to know and see how some organizations, reputable organizations deal with that sort of thing. Yeah, so let's move on to some uh, inflation uh, information or data. Yeah. Um, we're pretty well aware of the petrol price, having just done a massive road trip. Um, but yeah. US CPI, uh, it's pretty obvious to everyone that the petrol price is expensive. Um, but the US CPI came out at 7.9% in February. I mean, that's a huge number because the interest rates are still only 2%. So that's the official number, you know, whether it's right or wrong, we won't talk about. But the official number affects um, <coughs> bond markets and, and, you know, official places. More importantly, the PPI, so which is, that's basically the inflation that the factories and the producers are paying is 10%. So generally, if they're paying 10%, the consumers are going to buy those products in weeks and months, and in a few months, they're going to be paying 10%. So I do think um, double-digit CPI is something we're going to see this year. Definitely. You you wrote about this in a, uh, a recent article, which I'll link in the show notes, because it talks about how PPI is that leading indicator. Yep. Um, and yeah, obviously, it's that's going to flow on. And I would imagine PPI is probably <coughs> underestimated anyway. If that's as manipulated as a figure as the CPI, um, we can probably expect that that's already quite higher and will continue to raise higher as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, I haven't looked at the specifics of if it is or how it is manipulated, but even um, Germany, their, their published PPI has been as high as 25% this mm. year. You know, that's a staggering number. Another interesting uh, related to that piece of news that came out in today's newspaper is um, about the, how our Australian government estimates their um, interest costs. So we pay about um, this year, we're looking at about $17 billion in interest on our debt for the country. Uh, but the thing is, they assumed that that would be at an interest rate of 1.8% on the 10-year uh, bond, Australian bond. Today, I looked it up, that bond is trading at 2.84% yield. Mm. So that's a 57% increase. You know, so like you look at those small interest rate changes from 1.8 to 2.8, it doesn't seem crazy, but it means that the interest payments that we have to make in the country um, potentially could go up on the ones that have to be um, refinanced up 50%. Yeah. That's a lot. Um, We've sort of reached a bit of a point of no return of that, haven't we, where modern monetary theory is really kicking in, where governments and central banks are going to need to print just to pay the interest on their, essentially their loans. That's right. And I talked to that, I read that article in in November and I talked about when you see the government doing things that are going to cause more inflation to solve the problem of inflation, be worried. And we are seeing that now. So there's a federal election coming up and as we talked about, petrol is expensive. So in the price of petrol that you pay... I believe at a national level, there's a 44 cent fuel excise. So no, not all of that is the cost of fuel as tax in there. They're trying to rush through a proposal to reduce that by 10 or 20 cents um, for a temporary six month period. So I'm sure in six months, though, if the price is higher, it'll stay that way. But of course, that's reducing tax revenue. 
So you've got on the one hand interest costs likely to go up in the future and the policy is to reduce tax revenue. So who fills the gap? Well, we print more money, right? Exactly right. <laughs> and it just becomes a, a hidden tax instead. Yep. <clears throat> so yeah, we're seeing at the same time these inflationary pressures and also pressures on, I guess you could call it counterparty risk coming together all at the same time. And that seems mm. to be moving pretty fast. So um, it is definitely a bit of a concern. Anyone who has managed <laughs> personal budget, household budget, or has looked into the viability of buying or starting a business, none of this would make sense if you saw it in that circumstance. However, for some reason, the vast majority of people believe this makes sense when we see it as a, at a state or a bank or you know a governmental level. And of course, that's totally incongruous. Uh, you would manage a budget personally or in a business the same way you would try to manage a budget at a, at a governmental level. So I think that's just worthwhile to keep in mind that we're doing things that I don't say we as in personally, but we as in uh, the country, you know, the country, yeah, are doing things that are really just making the situation worse. We're using the same tools that got us here to try to get us out of it, which we know it's just going to expedite the process. Yeah, we're just digging a bigger hole. Mm. Um, and there's even talk of a $250 payment of, to reduce or help with cost of living, yeah. which is not going to go very far. Um, by the time it comes out, it will be worth less than $250. That's right, exactly. <laughs> and look, the uh, stimulus checks seem good at surface level. But when you think of the second order effects, all that does is that goes back into the economy. So it pushes prices up even higher. And where do those stimulus checks come from? They either come from taxes or they come from hidden taxes, which is inflation, which really is just expanding the monetary supply further, which, of course, pushes inflation up further. Yeah. So speaking of bonds, let's move on to the El Salvador bond. Yeah. This is a fascinating um, historical kind of moment for me, because this is, if you don't know, um, so there's a block, a sidechain called Liquid, which is a semi-centralized um, sidechain, but it, it connects to Bitcoin, but it is a, uh, a blockchain. Um, and the idea is to, to launch this bond on the Liquid blockchain. So it's a sovereign bond, um, but it'll be able to be launched on the blockchain and people can trade it and buy and participate in it and so on. But it's kind of outside the existing framework of how bonds are released now. And it also pays something like a 6.5% yield, is that right? That's right. So yeah. our 10-year yield in Australia is 2.8%. So um, those people who are looking for a fixed income, safe uh, kind of that sort of investment, mm. you know, do you go for a Australian bond paying 2.8% where we're printing money or do you um, look at the Bitcoin bond at 6.5%? I understand that what they're doing with that, it's up to a billion and they're putting half into like infrastructure investment and then the other half into buying Bitcoin to, uh, to sort of back or collateralize those bonds. Yeah, for sure. We're also seeing South Korea vowing to deregulate Bitcoin and crypto. So this is always, um, and introduce favorable tax laws. So, you know, the more countries that um, treat it more favorably puts pressure on other countries who want to keep the innovative workers and innovative businesses. So That's um, right. we're going to commend them for doing that. The new president that was just elected in South Korea has been already making some very uh, crypto in quotations and, and also alternating capitals, crypto, and of course, Bitcoin, he's been very favorable of it. And he's already said once he's gotten into office that he'll uh, he'll make that better. So I think he's he's not just saying that now, he's had a long history of saying those things, which is very, um, very reassuring. I just want to go back one step to the, uh, the El Salvador bond as well, because I know some people listening to this that have been following the news will know some of the adversarial news that's out there as well. So it's probably good just to just touch on it. Yeah, for sure. One of the complaints that people have had is that El Salvador has sort of, I don't want to say distanced themselves, but they, they have, uh, the way they're going to release this bond apparently is through La Gio, which is a state-owned thermal energy company rather than the bond being issued by the El Salvadorian government directly. Now, I don't know exactly what that means in terms of legal requirements, um, counterparty risk, and the rest of it. However, the main complaint that I've seen is that 
that was a little bit different to what people expected. They believed they were mm. getting a bond directly from the government, yeah. whereas now they're getting it from a government, I guess you could call it subsidiary, but it's a government-owned thermal energy company. Now, the other thing which was, I think, mostly resolved now is that Bitfinex, who they're uh, issuing the bond through, don't serve US customers. So there's some limitation in terms of who will be able to buy the bond. And it looks like US customers might not be able to buy this bond because it's going to be going through Bitfinex. However, kind of adding to the drama, it seemed like Bitfinex was sort of stepping away from the bond and then Binance stepped in. So CZ from Binance is uh, visiting El Salvador at the moment um, to explore the opportunity of the bond being released on Binance either instead of or as well as Bitfinex. However, shortly after that, Bitfinex released a statement to say that they will indeed be releasing at least 500 million of the bond. It sounds like this situation is changing um, and sometimes pretty rapidly. Every morning I wake up and there's uh, some new news about how it's going to go. But it's good to know that it does seem like it's still going ahead. Um, it's delayed. It was meant to be out in March, but they're saying it'll be out by the middle of the year. Um, and it's possible that if Binance does get involved, that maybe they can allow it to be um, bought by U.S. customers as well, which would be pretty cool. And if not, it's good to have that competition, you know, free markets. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, maybe it's not a sovereign bond. Maybe it's a corporate bond. But to be released in this way through effectively much closer to a free market than what we've ever seen before, I think it's just massive historically. Definitely. Um, the final uh, one I wanted to, to just talk about was, so we've got Bitcoin conferences coming up next month. Um, if you recall last year, there's a huge announcement of El Salvador making Bitcoin legal tender. You would think there's got to be something of substance to come out of this one. People would be planning all their marketing and timing around this conference. So best guess is, uh, I, think we think, I think maybe Honduras um, potentially could be doing something similar or Guatemala or Mexico. But, you know, what do you reckon, Justin? What do you? I, I think that, yeah, the first two are probably my picks. I reckon there's going to be more than one announced. I don't know. Maybe I'm being delusionally optimistic. However, I feel like they're going to want to one up what happened last year. So one country is not going to be enough. Two will be probably enough to get people really excited. Um, so, yeah, my, my thoughts are Honduras and Guatemala. Honduras has been teased by Max Kaiser quite a lot over the last couple of months, which is where... I guess that thought comes from. I know that Samson Mao was also visiting Honduras to discuss exactly this topic. Samson Mao has come out to say that Honduras won't be accepting Bitcoin as legal tender. But at the same time, I don't know whether that's just trying to squash some of the rumors so that it can be exciting once it's announced or if that's true, kind of reverse psychology or maybe just like psychology, psychology, we'll see. But Guatemala, Samson Mao was also visiting Guatemala and he was commenting on how great the coffee was, which is a, a you know, what's the word? an irreverent kind of statement, which makes me think that he was alluding to the fact that maybe he's there talking about Bitcoin adoption. <laughs> it's a subtle way of saying he's in Honduras. Exactly <laughs> yes. right. Um, and in Guatemala as well. So I think, yeah, probably those two. Uh, maybe Mexico, but I, I don't reckon. I reckon Mexico comes a bit further down the track than at the next conference. Yeah. And maybe there's like an announcement we just can't envision, you know, envision right now. But you have to think the large corporates, you know, companies like Apple, they're holding an enormous amount of cash. They've got to be thinking about this. Does... Does a company like that try and, I don't know if Michael Saylor's done it, but it's almost like old news now. Does a large company like that come in and try and uh, curry favor with the Bitcoiners in the world? Um, yeah, I, I, maybe the announcement will be something we haven't even seen before. That's true. Um, I think everyone is thinking state, you know, nation state adoption, but um, this is where curveballs usually get thrown and we hear something else that's actually more exciting. Yeah, so for sure. I don't know how they'll one up, but yeah, I'm, I'm keen to see. The other actually big one we're thinking about uh, sovereign nations is Russia kind of talking about maybe accepting Bitcoin for natural gas. I don't know what, you know, it's not happened yet, but, you know, to, to even conceive of that being a headline a year ago, exactly, like, it's just mind boggling. Mm -hmm. yeah, that, that, that is absolutely huge if it actually goes ahead. 
around the same time, I'll make sure I add this to the show notes as well. It's not on my current notes, but it's in my head. Uh, Exxon, which obviously are a huge energy producer, they are looking at selling their, I believe it's natural gas to Bitcoin miners. And the fact that Exxon is now getting into, well, at least by proxy Bitcoin mining, that in and of itself is game theory playing out too. So I imagine we're going to see more of that. And if coupled with nation state adoption is occurring, um, going back to your point just there, I do think other institutions would be looking at this much more seriously now. There's very big players getting into the space, even if by proxy at the moment, I feel like that's just a slippery slope in a good way where they end up starting to perhaps even mine themselves. Yeah, I mean, something we were talking about previously, you know, Russia can't just go to an exchange and buy some Bitcoin. Like it's just, the market is too small mm. for them. And for Exxon, Exxon is, you know, a huge, huge company. So the ways for them to actually access Bitcoin is to, you know, trade it for um, commodities or in Exxon's case, their, their product, uh, sell their product for for Bitcoin essentially. So that will be a slower adoption than trying to just go and take a trillion dollars and buy Bitcoin with it. But those signs, are, I think just like there's going to be this ripple effect where everyone rushes to try and do it after them. And it's the s supply crunch playing out. The fact that countries and institutions can't just go and buy all the Bitcoin they want at once. Yes. And they have to then start looking at other ways to earn Bitcoin yes. by mining it or supporting the, uh, the Bitcoin infrastructure. That's incentives to its core yep. of getting people just to support the network rather than just buy the Bitcoin. And it also shows that there's not enough Bitcoin to go around at the moment. So people need long-term strategies to accumulate yep. their dollar cost averaging, just like the rest of us. Exactly right. All right. So moving on to some other uh, sometimes adoption and sometimes not news. This is all stuff that happened over the bush bash. So I haven't had a lot of time to prepare it. So I'm just sort of like smashing this in here at a really weird spot. However, <laughs> I think it's useful to talk about. So Thailand has banned merchants accepting Bitcoin, which seems totally incongruous with the news that was out just a few weeks ago that Thailand was looking at making it uh, more favorable in their country to use Bitcoin and even considering removing things like a 15%, I believe it's like a capital gains tax on um, Bitcoin and other in quotations and alternating capitals crypto. But now it looks like they're saying to merchants that they cannot accept Bitcoin as a means of payment. Now they'll still allow people to buy and you know sell and trade their Bitcoin, but they don't want it becoming like currency because they believe it will be misused and they believe that it will create some financial instability and also it will uh, damage the national economy. I obviously don't agree with those statements. However, that is the narrative they're going with to uh, try to clamp down a bit on people using Bitcoin as a currency. So it sounds like they're kind of going the asset route. They're saying you can use it as an asset, you can use it as a form of property, um, but you can't use it for transactions. See how that goes. Maybe that is banning themselves from Bitcoin. Yeah, not, not a very long-term focus, but yeah. They have another thing that they're proposing. So this is something that might happen, but not exactly confirmed yet, is that they might put a cap on investments of 3% for commercial banks and fintech companies that are looking at investing in digital assets. So anyone of those organizations that has a large pool of funds that they're looking at putting into other assets on their balance sheet, they're saying they're going to limit that to 3%, perhaps. That would obviously slow down some of that global adoption over there. But again, it's more so they're banning their companies from getting into Bitcoin than really doing anything negative to the Bitcoin network itself. Well, I think this is really about the Thai bars, isn't it? They're exactly. worried about, I mean, it's not like one of the world reserve currencies. So they they can see the, the writing on the wall, I guess, that if all this currency, this activity moves to Bitcoin and away from their own currency, then mm. I'm sure they're as leveraged as everyone else. Because it has such far-reaching effects, doesn't it? If, if there's less demand for the Thai bar, the Thai bar loses its value. 
which means anyone holding the tie bar as a, an asset, for example, to collateralize a loan or, or something, uh, it means that loan becomes less and less collateralized. Yeah. It means they might not be able to make their payments. They might even default. It, of course, influences you know state to state, as in nation state, economic transfers and trade. Um, by changing the the value of the currency and by doing it in unpredictable ways as well, where it starts to introduce a great amount of volatility that not many people can predict. So I can see them trying to limit that by, yeah. by putting this um, 3%. Again, hasn't happened yet. They're proposing that. So hopefully that gets fought in Thailand. Sri Lanka is also going through their own financial and economic crisis. Um, I think everyone in the world is, but it sounds like they're a little bit further along. And they are seizing foreign currency reserves from customers that are using Sri Lankan banks. So this is not just companies, this is also individuals. So it's a pretty big step that they're taking. And I don't know all the nuance about what's led to their crisis. However, I imagine it's got something to do with the money printer going burr um, and the fact that they really only have two levers to pull, which is print more money or raise interest rates. And once both of those things don't work and actually lead to the problem, then they're looking at ways to um, collect more reserves, collect more assets um, to stabilize their currency. Unfortunately, when they don't have any of them themselves, they are just going to uh, expropriate it from, well, citizens and institutions. I mean, you would expect being a small island, they would have US dollar denominated debt and they would buy things like oil in US dollars. So if you look at, I think US, the US dollar has gone up relative to other currencies and obviously the price of oil has gone up. So um, I think what this shows us is that when it comes to choosing between feeding and uh, providing energy for the citizens, keeping your reserves safe you know they're going to choose to feed the citizens which is probably the right choice true um but what it's just another great advertisement for hardware wallets isn't it exactly right yeah self-custody so not at all to do with bitcoin news um unless you use a web browser to do anything to do with your bitcoin which you probably shouldn't in a lot of cases especially if it's google chrome because google chrome has a high severity zero day vulnerability so if you use Google Chrome, which you absolutely shouldn't, but if you do use Google Chrome, please go update your Google Chrome. We don't have anything out personally or, or uh, um, from us in terms of what kind of browsers to use on our official site. But if you look at Twitter, the hard block Twitter, you'll find that there's actually quite a few recommendations in terms of using, say, Firefox with a few added extensions or Brave Browser, Tor Browser, or even Liberwolf. All of those are very good privacy and security preserving browsers and worthwhile considering if you're using Google Chrome still. Trust me, they are making it more user friendly and very convenient and you won't miss out on much at all or anything at all by deviating from Google Chrome, um, except for the surveillance and the vulnerability. Yeah, and if you signed in to Google, they know everything you're doing. Exactly right. Okay, some Australian news. So it's really cool to see more Australian institutions, specifically miners, popping up. So there's one called Archon. I believe their official name is like Archon Energy. And so they're a green energy-focused Bitcoin miner. And they just set the Australian pre-seed funding record of 2.6 million, which is just cool to see. I'd love to say that that means that there's a huge amount of interest in their company and Bitcoin mining. And I, I'm sure it is that also. However, I feel like maybe this is because our money is becoming worthless. <laughs> That's a combination. <laughs> so I, I reckon we're going to have more and more of these pre-seed funding records, you know, a hit over the course of time or broken over the course of time yes. because money is just, yeah, devaluing. Yeah, but it's a, it's a great sign, isn't it? You know, and we do have um, a lot of probably surplus solar energy. Um, if they get the balance of capital and energy costs right, maybe that's something that they're trying to work on. But um, it's just great to see these stories come out in the media and people are just, they become more normal, you know, Bitcoin mining and Bitcoin countries and so on. And just, it just makes it 
a more normal part of our society. That's right. People ask the question more, what is Bitcoin? Why are people doing this? And just hearing the word Bitcoin over and over and over from various different reputable sources makes people more familiar. And look, our brain is like a big risk management or do not get killed machine. Um, so things that are familiar, even if they're a bit risky, we're more likely to accept and go towards than things that are unfamiliar. So this familiarity is just going to breed further adoption, which is awesome. So some news that's come out from a bank, ANZ is the first bank to mint an Australian dollar stablecoin, the ADC. Now it was used particularly in a transaction to help the Victor Smorgan Group pay another organization, um, a fund manager called ZeroCap. So they sent $30 million uh, within 10 minutes. We all know how quick, not blockchain in particular is, but how quick things like Bitcoin transactions can be, um, either on-chain or on the Lightning Network. And it seems like banks are starting to understand the same thing. And they even note in this um, article that was released to explain what's happened, that generally something like that would normally take several days using existing mm -hmm. systems and even up to several weeks. So the fact that they've been able to make that transaction, a large transaction in, within 10 minutes, and I imagine relatively cheaply, is very big news. So do you know what blockchain they use for that? I have no idea, to yeah. be honest. Um, they don't make it clear in this article. It just says that they're developing it behind the scenes and it was, a, it was a test to some degree, like a bit of a pilot test, but they're looking at doing much more of this. Yeah, it's pretty interesting because <clears throat> you kind of see like they've made an ANZ coin, not like an Australian coin, yeah. which is obviously a terrible design for the user because it has to work within the ANZ network. But I'm, I'm guessing they're thinking about, okay, how do we work in this blockchain space and still be a company and like, you know, it just doesn't really work out for them when you have Bitcoin or even a stable coin on, on say, um, Liquid. Exactly. You don't really need the ANZ. But it's interesting, um, for example, when JP Morgan, which is a large American bank, they forked Ethereum and made JP Morgan coin. And prior to that, they weren't able to transfer money between their branches, I believe. And now with JP Morgan coin, they use it just for, I believe, internal transfers. And it was a huge improvement over their current systems. So yeah, it's, it's quite, you know, they're obviously focused in my opinion in the, in the wrong place. Yeah. Um, I don't think it would be the worst thing to have an Australian dollar stable coin, but yeah, the fact that they're even thinking about it is, uh, yeah, it's very interesting. I think that's big news. Look, I didn't even know that JP Morgan coin was an actual JP Morgan coin. I always thought that was a meme because JP Morgan was involved very early with Ethereum in terms of scoping and funding. So when people called it JP Morgan coin, I thought that it's referring to Ethereum, but no, no, it's actually a I JP believe, Morgan coin. I believe it's a real thing. It's, it's, it's even more centralized <laughs> than Ethereum. But it, it's it's more like a back end system for them. Yeah. Well, interesting. Hey, look, it's good to see them innovating in the space. They're uh, probably focused on the wrong thing, but yep. either way, I think it's bullish for Bitcoin. Yeah. Now, one thing that I wanted to just point out from this article about the ANZ Australian dollar stablecoin is it says um, this is just a direct quote: "The move will boost ANZ's credentials as major banks race to develop new forms of money." I just want to confirm that this isn't really money; it's currency. But it's really interesting that major banks are now racing to develop new forms of money. I could imagine the kind of forms of money that they're looking at are probably going to be very similar to the ones that we already have. Again, not money, more like currency, fiat currency. But it's just interesting that we're now saying the silent part out loud. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you're seeing the pressure everywhere. You're seeing the pressure on Thailand and their actions. You're seeing the pressure on Commonwealth Bank exactly. to have Bitcoin available. And now you're seeing the pressure on ANZ. They're, True. they're seeing the, the competition for uh, you know transaction cost and transaction time. But the, uh, the last part here, which is, is all sort of bound up in this, is the Australian regular, regulatory requirements for cryptocurrency exchanges is uh, advancing. Now, it's advancing relatively slowly. There is consultation that's ongoing. So this is not a final process. 
but it sounds like there's going to be some pretty onerous regulatory requirements put on cryptocurrency and you know the more important ones bitcoin exchanges or bitcoin only exchanges that will make things like the uh, asset backing clearer it will make things like the staff requirements um, clearer but although those sound like good things when those things are already being complied with the frustrating part is that you then have to spend quite a lot of time jumping through hoops to demonstrate that attending meetings filling out forms that are quite you know duplicitous in terms of covering similar kind of content in just various different ways yeah and regular audits and all this takes a lot of time a lot of money which starts to cut out a lot of smaller exchanges perhaps out of the market and makes it very difficult for new entrants which of course starts to limit things like free market competition and it starts to consolidate the i, I want to say power but not but that might not be the right word but it starts to consolidate um, down the exchanges from they're saying there's almost 400 exchanges and they want to get down to about 30. Um, that makes it much easier to control those exchanges um, and to sort of centralize a lot of where people might be buying their bitcoin so i don't know I'm, I'm sort of i like regulation that protects people i like regulation that makes things easier this doesn't sound like that kind of regulation to me but the process is still ongoing so i just want to reserve maybe my final thoughts on it until we, we hear a bit more yep well, that's uh, it's most of the stuff we needed to cover today. There's always new news every single day. So we'll do another of these podcasts in a couple of weeks time. But before I uh, you know, do the outro, any final comments, Jeremy, anything that you feel like we, uh, we didn't cover? Any I think if, if we were doing this a year ago, just one of these, uh, you know, Sri Lanka seizing foreign currency, that would be a massive headline. And it's almost like every dot point is a huge headline now. Just the pace of, of uh, very impactful news coming out is, uh, is, is hard to keep up with. It's moving quickly, isn't it? And um, exciting times. You know, it, it's a bit of a mixed bag. There is some news in there that sounds like, you know, there's clampdowns, there's regulations, making things difficult, less free market economy. But then there's also things like nation state adoption, institutional adoption, things becoming easier and more private for users of Bitcoin. So news is always a mixed bag right but i i see both of these things as being bullish because people that initially were ignoring or laughing at bitcoin are now taking it very seriously and seeing it as a threat and people that love bitcoin are just loving it more and using it more and getting greater tools to be able to do that so sounds great to me yeah for sure well thanks everyone for listening please like share and subscribe if you enjoyed the content and um, let us know in the comments or reach out to us on twitter at hardblockbtc if you've got any feedback or content requests Thanks for listening and until next time.